David Livingston was known as a great explorer, as an adventurer to most of the world, and yet his primary motivation was to be a missionary. He wrote in his diary once, I wake up in the morning and see the smoke of a thousand villages that don't, have never heard the name of Christ, and that's what keeps me going. He also one time was asked, how can you go into such dangerous places? The first European to uh, cross the continent of Africa and map out places and discover rivers and lakes. How do you go forward with such boldness and his response was rather simple. He says, there's a verse in Matthew 28. It's a life verse for me. And it says, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Even unto the end of the world. Even unto the end of time. And it was that promise of God's presence in the most difficult situations, since he was going about doing God's will, that kept him going and gave him courage. But what he wrote in his diary after that is what stirs my heart. It's, it's an amazing little quip. He said this. After quoting Matthew 28, Lo, I am with you always, he said, This is the word of a gentleman of the most strict and sacred honor. So that's the end of it. You see, he lived in a society that had a standard of honor. A gentleman's word was kept. If you were a gentleman, you kept your word. Your word was your bond. And so he said the word of God is the word of a gentleman of the most strict and sacred honor. So that's the end of that. <laughs> I'll just believe it. And he went forward with great courage. He said, over a thousand times I placed my finger on that verse, and that's what kept me going. Well, I believe we have in Mark chapter 10 one of those verses that if you place your heart upon it, will keep you going. Mark chapter 10 is where we're going to study this morning, continue, continuing our series on the life of Christ, simply Jesus, we want to know who he is and what he said, how he lived, so that we can be Christ-like and encouraged. Mark chapter 10. And we need to review last week's story because what we're going to look at today is really the epilogue of that particular story. We read in verse 17 of Mark 10, as Jesus started on his way, he's on the east side of the Jordan River, and he's working his way west toward Jerusalem for that last week of his life that ends on Good Friday with the crucifixion. Doesn't really end there. It ends up with the resurrection and then continues on in ministry for the disciples. But he's going to that Passion Week. He set his face like a flint, as we read in Isaiah, and he's on his way. A man comes running up to him, falling on his knees before him, and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, Why do you call me good? There's only one who is good, and that's God. Only God is good. Are you calling me God? And I don't think that's what, the, what this individual was doing, so Jesus is trying to correct his theology. He has a misunderstanding about the character of God. 
And then Jesus says to him in verse 19, you know the commandments, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, don't defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he says, teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth, since I was a boy, since my bar mitzvah. And I think outwardly he was probably telling the truth. But you see, he not only had a misunderstanding about the character of God, he had a misunderstanding about his own heart. And so Jesus, not wanting necessarily to get into a debate, simply puts a test to him, which is an application of the Ten Commandments. Jesus says in verse 21, after looking at him, I'm sure, with the look of love and of Grief and grace mixed together. There's one thing you lack. Go sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And Jesus is not saying that the way to eternal life is to sell all of your possessions and purchase them. This is a test. Just like God gave to Abraham in the book of Genesis, where he said, I want you to sacrifice Isaac, your son, your only son, the son of promise. And as Abraham was fulfilling that Uh, requirement, that request, while the knife was lifted up in the air, God stopped him. And he said, now I know that you are going to follow me with all of your heart. The way to eternal life is not to sell your goods. But the problem was, this man who was wealthy loved his possessions. That was his God. His wealth was his God. And so Jesus simply applied the First commandment of the ten, no other gods before me, and the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet, he made a test. And this young, rich ruler, who seemed so polite and so eager and so earnest, had a God he loved more than Christ. And he would not let that God go. In fact, we read in verse 22, at this, the man's face fell, he went away sad, because he had great wealth. The man was sad. I think Jesus was sad as well. His heart is broken and filled with grief when we turn away from that which would give us rich blessing, when we walk away from his truth. But what about the disciples? I think they might have been shocked maybe confused. And the story picks up with verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. I call that a stunning statement. It's it's shocking, and Jesus loved to do this, to put out a statement that would grab the attention of people. It's stunning because the prevalent view in that day was that the rich had all the advantages and were blessed of God. Possessions were a sign of godly prosperity, his favor and his love. Why, the rich had all the advantages in the world. They didn't have to worry about gaining a a livelihood. They didn't have to worry about uh, uh, the food that might come to them. They had more time to worship more money and resources to give to good causes. Why, the wealth had everything. 
And maybe that's why Tevia sings, if I were a rich man, oh, I'd have all these blessings in time. By the way, we have the same view today. I was flipping the channels last night before I went to sleep, and there was a Christian station, and I watched it for about as long as I could, which was 15 seconds. And some man was saying, if you give money to this ministry, you will be blessed. If you deposit your seed of money in our ministry, God will bring you a rich harvest of things, of money, possessions, health. Oh, my heart was breaking because I had just been studying Mark chapter 10. No, it's not that the rich are blessed. In fact, great possessions can be a curse because they can rob you from God's best blessing. Did you ever think about it that way? The guy in Proverbs prays in chapter 30, don't give me more than I should have because then I'll forget you. The danger of riches is that they become our trust. We worship them. We love them. We serve them. It's not that we don't need some things to live, but it's when those things become our God that we are robbed of the richest blessings of all. Not wrong to be rich. Abraham. Job, prime minister, or or Job was very wealthy. Joseph, prime minister in Egypt. David, king. Solomon. These guys had tremendous wealth and the blessing of God. But it's really difficult for people who have a lot of things not to trust them. Oh, and by the way, I'm talking to a bunch of rich people this morning. Because most of us in America live a life far above the standard of anyone else anywhere in the world. And you may not be as rich as some of the rich people in America, but you're richer than almost anyone else anywhere else. And the tendency to trust what you have can rob you of the greatest blessing that God wants to give. The Bible tells us the disciples, verse 24, were astonished. The word means they... They were astounded, stupefied. And so Jesus gives them this curious analogy in verse 24 and 25. He repeats his statement. Children, by the way, that may be a a slight rebuke. Uh, They were mature adults, and they should have been maybe mature believers. Sometimes the word children means you're still babes, as Paul uses it in Corinthians. Children... How hard it is for those who trust in their riches to enter into the kingdom of God. That's the focus. It's not the wealth. It's trusting in the wealth. And then here's the word picture. Here's the illustration, verse 25. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And I think this has been so misunderstood. I've heard people say, well, there was a a gate in the walls of Jerusalem around the city And it was called the needle gate. And when a camel laden with goods would come to that gate, they'd take the goods off the camel, and the camel would get down on its knees and kind of scoot its way through that gate. And I think that's ludicrous. 
Whether it happened or not, that's really not what's being taught at all. By the way, the camel could just go to the next gate. There are all kinds of gates around the city. You say, well, what's happening here? Jesus is saying it's not hard for a rich man who trusts his riches to get into heaven. It's impossible. He's taking an obviously large object like a camel and saying it's impossible to squeeze that large animal through an extremely small opening like in the eye of a needle. It's not hard. It's impossible. Now, again, he's not saying riches are bad. He's saying if you trust your riches, there's no way you can enter into the kingdom of God. And the disciples are incredulous. Verse 26, they were even more amazed than they were before. And in desperation, they say, who can be saved? We might as well give up. Nobody can be saved. And Jesus now had them exactly where he wanted them. And he revealed this amazing truth. Verse 27. With men, this is impossible. But not with God. All things are possible with God. Wow. Do you believe that? I nod my head and say yes, but my life doesn't always show it. I've not come under this wonderful truth like David Livingston came under Matthew 28 so that it will drive me boldly in the face of danger and give me courage when I have none and strengthen me when I am so weak. All things are possible with God. Now, what is impossible? Well, verse 27, Jesus said, salvation the very thing that the disciples were saying, who then can be saved? Jesus said, well, salvation with man's impossible. That is, man can do nothing to save himself. There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. Why, you don't even desire salvation. You're born with a love for darkness rather than light because your deeds are evil. And no one seeks after God. You've got to be touched by God's grace. Yes, indeed, you have to believe with your own mind in the affections of your own heart and make a decision with your own will. But left to yourself, you would never seek after God. That's why we love him, because he first loved us. Salvation is impossible for the adult who won't become like a child and accept the kingdom of God with nothing to offer. That's an earlier story that Jesus told us in Mark 10. Salvation's impossible for the person who loves their possessions so much that they won't let them go to follow God. Salvation's impossible for them. There's nothing you can contribute to your salvation. Salvation is not you and God working together to accomplish redemption. It is the work of God and God alone. And with an empty hand, you accept it as a gift. What Jesus is telling us is the power of salvation belongs to God. I remember reading the Schofield notes years ago. C.I. Schofield said that the central verse in all of the Bible is Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. It simply says, salvation is of the Lord. 
When did he say that? In the belly of a great fish? In the depths of a deep ocean? When he realized that there was nothing he could do to contribute to his salvation. If I'm going to be delivered, it's got to be of God. Salvation is of the Lord. And indeed it is, my friend. The only way you can have your sins forgiven, the only way you can be right with God, the only way that you can be made pure so as to live in heaven is by God's work and God alone. And until you understand that, you'll hold on to your other gods and never let them go. Hebrews 12 tells us that Jesus is the author and the what? Finisher. Some translations say pioneer and completer. He's the alpha and he's the omega, the beginning and the end. Salvation is the work of God. With men, it is impossible. Man cannot. God can. There are serious limitations put on man. In spite of all of the wonderful discoveries that mankind continues to make that are so astounding, man is so limited and there's so much he doesn't know. But all things are possible with God. Now I want you to note that the last phrase in verse 27 enlarges the scope of God's ability. While the impossibility refers to man earning, creating, Achieving salvation. The idea that all things are possible with God includes salvation in particular, but all things in general. All things are possible for God. Which means I can put into this verse the trial that I'm facing and the wisdom that I need, the grace, the strength, the courage, the help, the support. It's all here. I'm astounded at some of the trials that the people, that people in South are going through right now. Unbelievable trials. Some of them are physical. Some of them are financial. Some of them have to do with justice or injustice. Some of them have to do with broken relationships and failed marriages. Some have to do with someone even losing their faith or doubting their faith and struggling with all of those internal questions the loss of loved ones, I tell you, horrible things. But I have a message for you that if you put your finger on this verse will give you courage and help like you've never experienced before. All things are possible with God. Now I was stirred to do a little word study on this word impossible and depending on the translation, you find it about nine or 10 times in the New Testament. The first time it's found, you know the verse very well. It's Matthew chapter 17. In light of the doubt of his disciples, Jesus said, I say to you, if your faith is as big as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be moved, and it'll be moved. For nothing is impossible for you. In that one verse, Jesus connects our horrible situation our failing, even our doubts, with the God who can do the impossible. And what's the connecting link? Faith. 
even if it's as small as a grain of mustard seed, if it's genuine and placed in God, amazing things can happen. Which then connected me to Hebrews 11.6 that says without faith, it is impossible to please God. For when you come to God, you must believe that he is. That takes faith. And you must believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You've got to see God as good. Not only that he exists, but that he's good. That's what we've been studying in Mark chapter 10. And by faith, you recognize his existence. You recognize his generosity and his goodness. And you seek him with all your heart. And what does that verse say? He rewards those. He rewards those who diligently seek him. So when I put faith in the God who does the impossible, amazing things can happen. You want to know how amazing? Look at Luke chapter 1 just for a moment. Luke chapter 1. You know the story well. It's a young girl who lived in a city called Nazareth. She was a virgin, engaged to be married to a young guy named Joseph. And an angel appears and says, Mary, you're going to have a son. And she couldn't understand it. She didn't doubt the promise. She doubted the process. And that's understandable. How can this be? I've never known a man, she said. And then the angel says, well, I'll tell you how it's going to happen. The power of God is going to come upon you. And that which is born of you is going to be the Son of God. And to Mary's question about process, look at verse 37. Nothing is impossible with God. Now, you may have a different translation and may say it somewhat differently, but the NIV 84 says, nothing is impossible with God. I love that phrase. I mean, if he can pull off the incarnation, if he can pull off a virgin birth, can your problem be too difficult? No. And so when I put faith into God Almighty who does the impossible. Amazing things are going to happen in my life. Let that verse sink deep down into your soul and change the way you live. It's somewhat surprising what happens next. Verse 28, Peter said to him, we've left everything to follow you. It's almost like the verse never, the, the, the statement never got into Peter's heart. We've left everything to follow you. Now, I know that rich guy, he left because he had great possessions and he wasn't willing to give those up, but we gave up our possessions. He held on to his possessions and rejected you. We let go of our possessions to follow you. We've left everything to follow you, Peter says in verse 28. The New American Standard Bible puts it this way. What will there be for us? Peter says, hey, what's in it for us? Which is what a lot of Christians are asking. It's all about me. Hey, if I follow Christ, what's in it for me? What do I get? If I were Jesus, I would have turned and walked away. But you can be thankful that I'm not Jesus. For Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, no one who has left home or brothers 
or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. And he now adds to this wonderful truth about the power of salvation that belongs only to God, the fact that there's a promise of reward and that reward comes only from God. It's not that God has not promised to bless us. He has. And he longs to bless us. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 in the creation of man, and that was in the heart of God from the beginning. He wants to bless us with blessings unbelievable, incomparable. And he notice, notice he says the blessings come, first of all, in this age, and the blessings are primarily relationships. Now, what did Peter leave? Well, Peter left his family. We know he had a wife. We know he had a mother-in-law may not have been as difficult to leave as some of the other things, but he also left his, his occupation. They left their nets and followed Christ. He left his home in the little town of Capernaum. They left everything. And Jesus said to Peter, I just want you to know that I am no man's debtor. And whatever you sacrifice for me, you will get far more in return. Relationships. You've left father and mother and children, and yeah, fields. For me, you'll receive a hundred times more. And isn't that true in this age? When I became a Christian, I have a wonderful, wonderful nuclear family, and thank the Lord I didn't lose that family, but I gained a spiritual family that is unbelievable. The family here at South is my family, and I love you as dear brothers and sisters in Christ. I go to China, people I've never met, I can't even talk with them. Uh, some might know English, and pretty soon we're talking about being brothers and sisters in Christ, and they give me a meal and a place to stay. And there are people like that all over the world. Why? If I had to leave my family, I would have gained far more. You will receive immeasurably more than you ever gave up. The sacrifice will not ultimately involve any loss. It's not subtraction, it's multiplication. But the blessing that he focuses on is more of these amazing relationships. Remember Moses? We're told in Hebrews chapter 11 that Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, Rather, he chose to endure affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. What a choice. How did he do that? He saw him who was invisible. He esteemed the reproach of Christ and the, pers the, the persecution that comes with it as being more valuable than the riches of Egypt. And the scripture says he was looking for the reward. He endured because he saw him who was invisible that had a reward for him that was better than anything this world could offer. So God promises that he's going to give us amazing blessings. Now the motive needs to be right. Look at verse 29. For me in the gospel, you're willing to leave all of these things. It's not this health and wealth theology. If I give, I'll get more in return. It's not this quid pro quo. 
that God now is my, now my debtor and must bless me. Oh, no. I do this for Christ and the spread of the gospel. And if the motive is right, the blessings are unbelievable. R.G. Letourneau, who founded a college of engineering in Texas, was a strong believer in his business, was so blessed that he lived on the 10% and gave 90% away. But he made this amazing statement. He said, if you give because it pays, it won't pay. Your motive's wrong. So Jesus promises reward. There's nothing wrong about talking about reward. He promises unbelievable reward. Look at verse 30. Homes and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and fields and persecution and... And what? He promises persecution? Yeah. Out the window goes the health and wealth theology right there. Through much tribulation, you will enter the kingdom of God. Becoming a Christian doesn't make life easier. In fact, sometimes it makes it incredibly harder. And there is coming an age when the status of a believer in our country will not be one that is looked upon with dignity, that is not dignified by acceptance and honor and respect. As it was in the first century, so I think it will be in the 21st century that Christians, even in North America, will be looked upon as the filth of the earth because you believe in a book and a God you can't even see and you hold positions that we don't like. Wow. Yeah, there'll be difficulties. In fact, in just a couple weeks, I don't know exactly how long, but chronologically, in just a couple weeks, Jesus is going to say to his disciples what is recorded in John chapter 15. If the world hates you, understand this, it hated me first. If you were of the world, they would love you because they love their own, but you're not of the world because I've chosen you out of the world. That's why they hate you. Please remember that a servant is not greater than his master, and if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. I predicted that I would go to Jerusalem and suffer, and I'm now predicting that you are going to receive some amazing challenges. So don't be surprised. You've got a family to help you through, and you've got a God who can do anything. Oh, and there's one other aspect of the reward It's not only this age, but it's the age to come. The Jews knew only two ages, the age that now is and the age to come, this one and the next. Oh, we can divide Bible history into eras and epochs and dispensations, and we can talk about the time in the Old Covenant before creation and after creation and the monarchy and all of these different time periods, but basically it's now and the future. This world and the world that is to come. And God says, I'll bless you in this world and the world to come. So the way to navigate through this life is to remember at least two important lessons from this wonderful text. Number one, nothing is impossible with God. Do you believe that? Live it. Number two, no one loses who honestly serves the Lord. 
No one loses anything they've sacrificed because Christ will be no man's debtor. And he ends with one of those paradoxical statements, verse 31. But those who are first in the eyes of the world, the rich, they'll be last. And those who are last in the eyes of the world will be first. Jesus loves to put out these maxims in paradox. The two will be one, he said earlier in chapter 10. The adult needs to become like the child. In a few verses, he's going to say, the servant of all is the greatest of all. And at the end of chapter 10, it's the blind man who really sees. And now he says, the last will be first. D.L. Moody was serving in Ireland. It was in Dublin that he met a man by the name of Henry Varley. Henry said to D.L. Moody something that stuck with him, that radically changed his life. And it was this statement, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. Moody left the shores of Ireland and sailed back to America, and he said, ah, those words were sent to my soul from the living God. As I crossed the wide Atlantic, the boards of the deck of the vessel were engraved with them. When I reached Chicago, the very paving stones of the street were marked with them, and they all cried out to me, Moody, the world is yet to see what God can do in the life of a person fully consecrated to him. And Moody said, by the grace of God, with the help of God, let me be that man. Well, I present to you the amazing word of God that says God can do the impossible and any sacrifice you make will be blessed abundantly. And how do we respond? How do we respond to the challenge? May we say, by the grace of God, let us be the people who live in light of the God who does the impossible. Let's pray. Lord, you saved us, and that is a miracle. You're going to bless us with rewards we don't deserve, and that is grace. And you've promised to bless us in this life, but there'll be a mixture of good times and challenging times. And those who put their faith and trust in Christ have been promised life that never ends. Help us to live like it with boldness and courage and faith that causes our world to set up and see those who are truly dedicated to you. In Jesus' name, amen.